This podcast is part of the Eat Geek Play Network. For more podcasts about comic books, music, and geek lifestyle, go to eatgeekplay.com. I think it was from an early acting teacher. He said, you need to get out of class. Classes are fine. And if, any, if there's any aspiring actors listening to this, they should know classes can be very useful. But he said, you will learn so much more by doing than you will ever learn by training or by being a student to someone. I mean, an acting class is basically a bunch of actors sitting around telling each other how great they are, you know? Oh, yeah. And it was invaluable to get out there in front of people over and over and over again and learn what worked and learn what didn't work. That's the reason I started doing sketch and improv comedy. I never really thought of getting into comedy as a career. It's not what, really? I, what I wanted to do. Welcome back to Creative Spaces. My name is Kevin Knight. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to flip the script a little bit. The fine folks over at Long Beach Comic Con were nice enough to invite Eek Geek Play out. We had our whole studio set up there and had a chance to interview a bunch of really cool creators. So the next couple of weeks, this podcast will be devoted to those interviews. First up, we have the man of a thousand voices, the co-host of Hollywood Babylon with Kevin Smith, the writer of Batman 66 meets Green Hornet, and head writer for K-Rock's Kevin and Bean show, and just an amazing guy, Mr. Ralph Garman. As I've said before, I really want to get other people on this as, you know, people that aren't just comic book writers and stuff like that. Ralph is just a professional geek, and he also passes along some great advice for upcoming actors and just career in general. So if you like this interview, please go over and subscribe to the podcast. Here's this week's interview with Ralph Garman. Uh, Ralph, it's been so long. It has been. What's it been, a year? But about yeah, did we do it last year? We yeah, did last it? Long Beach. Yeah, yeah. wasn't I? I because I, they do two a year, so they do Expo uh, oh, and right. but and you didn't do Expo. No, Mm-mm. but I'm glad you came out. I was excited to see that your name was on on the dot on on the you know list of things. I was excited they asked me to come out. <laughs> you never know whether excited you're wanted. or surprised. You never know when you're wanted, and when someone wants you, it's always nice. Ralph, you're always wanted in this community. Well, that is not true, but nice. <laughs> I. I don't know. In this in this world, I'm sure you're you feel wanted. Well, I have a certain amount of geek cred because I am a geek, and uh, but that doesn't necessarily always mean people want to hear what you have to say, because I know a lot of geeks that I don't want to talk to and hear what they have to but say. I think it's it's more of especially in in being Southern California. Yes, you know you're a, a professional geek, and you've been able to make a profession out of your love for Batman. Part of it, yeah. Yeah. A part of my career has been carved out of my geekdom, which is nice. If you can do what you love and someone will pay you a couple bucks for it, that's always a good thing. I mean, you are able to play Adam West, you know? Like, like be able to go on K-Rock and be, make jokes about Adam West. Oh, I thought that you meant at home, else. at home when I dressed well, up as Adam yeah, West. Well, yeah, we're, we're not going to yeah. talk about that one. I thought you knew a little too much about me. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I mean, mean the, the fact that you were able to do that, that not a lot of other people are, and, and, and make a career out of it. Yes. That's, that's, I think that's what people love and respect about you, Ralph, is the fact that, you know, you're, you, you've made it cool for us. <laughs> I don't know about that. I barely made it cool for me. I don't know how I can make it cool for anybody else. But <laughs> I do like what I like, and I don't hide it. And so I think that's, if there's anything I've done, is, is allow people to feel 
you know, bold about being a geek or whatever and not have to hide it. Because when I first started on the Kevin and Bean show, I mean, should we introduce me? Does everyone know who I am? Maybe oh, yeah. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is Ralph Garman. Hi. I realize I'm sitting here, some people are going, who is that guy? What's he talking <laughs> That's about? That's happened a couple times today. <laughs> Why are they talking about Secret Wars? You're supposed to be Mark Guggenheim. That's <laughs> yes, right. Uh, I do work on a radio show locally here in the Los Angeles area called The Kevin and Bean Show on K-Rock. Thank you. Now, how long have you been on it? Like I was trying to think of that today because someone asked years? me. It's been at least 15 years. I think I started at the, right at the tail end of the... 1990s, and I remember being there when the Y2K thing was a, a thing. So wow, it must have been the turn really of the century. So, so anyway, when I first started on that show, I was unabashedly still geeky, and they mocked me for it mercilessly. Oh, of course. They what, still kind of do. They still mock me, that's true. But now, the geeks kind of rule the world. I mean, this was in a, this was in a pre-Avengers time. This was when I would go down to Comic-Con and they would say, really? You're going to go down to San Diego and, and do that thing with all those have people? A booth there. And then, then K-Rock moved the show to be broadcast from down there after a while. Funny so, how things change. Huh? Yes. So once you know, geeks started ruling the world and comic book movies became the biggest movies in the world and, and comic book TV shows became popular, way before that I was still geeky and they would mock me, but they have certainly cut down on that since all the success that has come in terms of the world of, uh, of you know, comics and sci-fi and that kind of stuff, it's, it's, they're much more uh, acceptable now. So can we go back in time a little bit? You were talking about starting at K-Rock. Yes. You kind of came in in a really cool point where, because Kimmel and, and Corolla were still there, right? Uh, I was right at the tail end of Kimmel. Corolla was off and on. He did characters. He did a character called Mr. Burcham and a couple other characters for those guys. And him and Jimmy worked together and did some stuff for the, the radio show. But Jimmy was the guy there at the time. He was doing sports for Kevin and Bean, but he was also writing all the content and writing sketches and doing voices and writing their games and stuff. So um, Jimmy brought me in to take his place because he was leaving to go do television. He was going to go do The Man Show with Adam Corolla. And so... Uh, Jimmy brought me in and suggested I would be a good replacement. He didn't want to leave those guys with that hole yeah. in the show. So he suggested I would be good, and I had never really even heard the, the show before. How did you meet Jimmy? I met Jimmy because I was in a sketch and improv comedy group called the Acme Comedy Theater, and Adam Carolla was also part of that same group. And so Jimmy would come to see the shows. And yeah. uh, he saw me do impressions and characters and things like that. So he got to know me and thought when the time came for his replacement that I would be a good suggestion because he knew I wrote and he knew I performed. He knew I could do voices and silly things and that was kind of what they needed on that, on that morning show. So he suggested I meet with Kevin and Bean and um, see if we hit it off. And like I said, I'd never heard the show before because really? I, was, I was making a buck at, in the, at the time as a bartender. So I would, you know, work till two, then drink till five. <laughs> And then sleep but till noon. But that hasn't changed really, Not right? Really, no. Um, so I would sleep till noon, so I'd never heard much of any morning radio in Los Angeles. True. But I met those guys, and they kind of described the job, and I said, yeah, okay, it's not really what I want to do, because I was still trying to be an actor at the time and a writer. And I said, it's not really what I want to do, but I'll do it for a couple months until you find somebody permanent. And that was 15 years ago, so <laughs> it shows you what I know about anything. So yeah, so I started working there, and uh, that was the beginning of, little did I realize, that job that I didn't really want to take 
would lead me to so many other jobs that I really did want to take, and that it would take me on this amazing journey. And so it's 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 been kind of an, an amazing journey. Do you look back at where? Do you look at where you are now and look kind of look back? Going, how the fuck did I get here? Not really, because I don't feel like I've gotten here yet. You know, if that makes any sense. You do a successful podcast, which is the word successful and podcast do not go well together. Trust me, I know. <laughs> I. But the fact that you did that alone, Ralph, to have that that found, that that people aren't just—it's not just Kevin. It's the two of you. Your dynamic that makes that that podcast so successful. Yes, we're talking you about know? Hollywood Babylon. Yeah. If anybody listens to that I'm, show, I'm assuming yeah. everybody Kevin here Smith. already knows. You know, well, people You're, listening may not know. Maybe they don't yeah, know. So. Yeah. But I do that with Kevin Smith. Yeah, and that also came out of the radio show because Kevin would come on the show to promote whatever he had going on, and that's where we became friends, was him coming in to do the radio show. And then eventually, friendship led to the idea, like, we should work together, we should do something together. And then when he started podcasting, I think he only had one or two, maybe, under his belt at the time. He's doing, like, 17 now. Yeah. But um, he was doing Smodcast, the original one, and maybe one more. And I said, we should do one about stuff that we like, you know, entertainment news and pop culture and stuff, and, and maybe do it in front of a live audience. And that was that was five years ago we started Congratulations that. Congratulations on happy anniversary. Thank you so much. Yeah. You know, but that I, also it just came out of wanting to do something fun with somebody you liked working with. And yeah. it, we never dreamed in a million years it would be this successful. World tours and Yeah, we did Euro everything. Europe last year. We thirty six hundred people at the Apollo Theater in That's London insane. to watch us do a podcast. Congratulations. <laughs> which is kind of madness. Again, successful podcast. Those yes. words don't go together look, very often. The only often. time I feel like I've accomplished anything is when you look back and you put all the stuff together in a big pile. Then I say, wow, that's kind of cool that I have done all these really cool things. But as I sit day in and day out, as I sit wherever I am working, I don't feel like, okay, I've arrived or I've achieved anything. You know, you're always still wanting to do more and do the next thing. Because I, I look, uh, just being an, an outside observer, I'm like, Ralph Carmen's got it made, man. He's doing podcasts and he's doing, you know, voiceover work and everything else. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'm just greedy. Maybe well, that's the problem. Well, I mean, that's the whole thing, though, is do you feel like you can't settle on, like, okay, I've got this career. I'm good where I am. Do you always have to feel like you're, you're, you're looking for that next, that next gig? Uh, I do. And I think it's only because if you're a creative person in general, and most people in this world seem to be, you know, I, that's one thing I like about the geeks is everyone seems to have a creative aspect to them, whether they're making their costumes or whether they're writing or they're doing art or whatever. I think you choose that lifestyle, you choose to do that because you can't imagine yourself sitting behind a desk at the same job no. for 20 years. You know, you don't want to punch in and punch out. You don't want to work in a cubicle. You want, a, you want a life filled with variety and a series of experiences that, that make you more interesting and a better artist that is whatever that you do and to make and to lead to the next thing. You know, yeah. I'm surprised I'm still doing the radio show after 15 years. I never wanted to do anything for 15 years, my whole life. And to have the same job for 15 years, well, that was not What's kept you around of, then? What's that? What's kept you around then? Money. Yeah. It's no, not good it's, at that point, it's, right? it's, well, it's good money. But it's also, it's a nice steady income. Yeah. Which initially I didn't care about because I was single. But when you get married and then you have a kid and stuff... It's, a job is kind of important. You kind of lean on that. And you Not starting a podcast at 40 years old, <laughs> hoping about comic books, but hoping could, that somebody But cares. it could, doing the thing you love invariably, I think, leads to more success than doing something oh, that yeah. you don't. You oh, know? for sure. 
And um, K-Rock and the, and the morning radio show has been a nice, consistent, safe place for me, first of all, to experiment and to do different voices and to do characters and create um, in that, as much as you can within that framework, you know, which is limited. You have a limited amount of time between songs and commercials. Yeah. And there's a certain type of humor or type of thing that you, that the radio dictates that you do. Yeah. So within that framework, I've been able to sort of try new things and do stuff, but then it's also led me to, to do other things, movies and television shows and comic books and podcasts, and it's been kind of the place where everything else has, has grown from, and to that I will always be grateful. So what kind of credit you guys as being the man of a thousand voices? Like 27. 27 you, voices. You a pretty good cachet at this point. I do, I do a few voices very well, in my own humble opinion. I do a lot of voices not so good, but I can make them kind of funny so people forgive me. And then I'm really just awful at other voices. So. Where did that come from? It, I, I always, whenever someone asks me that, how do you do that? I always think back to a good friend of mine that I grew up with in Philadelphia, my hometown, who at parties, was, he had an especially long tongue. And at parties, he would take an M&M and put it on the end of his tongue. And he would stick it out, and he was able to take the M and stick it up into one of his <laughs> nostrils. <laughs> and, and he doesn't have a TV show? He what doesn't have hell? a TV show, doesn't have a YouTube channel, nothing. But he, would able, he did that at almost every goddamn party we were ever at, <laughs> and people loved it. And I used to say to him, that's great that you have the thing that you can do at every party that, people are, that makes people happy. And he goes, it's not like I learned it. It's not like I trained for this. I just have a long tongue. I just stuck it, my, stuck it up my nose one day. It was it's just, just an accident. The, girl, the, girl, oh, the girls must be like, oh, yeah, Yeah, hey. the, girl, the ladies were interested in it, that's for sure. <laughs> but for me, that's how I feel about the voice thing. I've been doing voices since I was a little kid in elementary school to make my friends laugh at lunch. You know, I was doing cartoon characters and stuff. It's just... I guess it's just a thing you can do or you can't do. I mean, I, obviously you can learn to, to do voices, but it's always come easily to me. So it's hard for me even to take credit for it because I feel like I didn't really earn it. It's just sort of a, a blessing, I it's guess. It's just something you, you never really thought you could do until... You know, well, it I knew I could really do became, it, but... It I, never really became something you're like, hey, yeah, okay, this is... This is funny that like other people will care about this besides my friends. I never dreamt that I would be doing it professionally. Yeah. You know, it was something I would do for my friends to make them laugh, but years and years and years went by before I ever started to say, well, this is, this is another arrow in my quiver that I can use professionally and pull At it out. At what point you did know? you realize that it was an arrow? Um, again, it was the Acme Comedy Theater. It was a sketch and improv comedy troupe that I was working with. Up till then, I had been just a straight actor. I'd, I'd done comedy and drama, but it was all just acting with a script. Once I had to start to write my own material and then do improvisational comedy on stage, sometimes you get desperate and you start saying, all right, what, what do I have in my head that I can think of that I can use to, to stand out from the How cast? How can I be funnier you know? than everybody else? Right. Well, you want to stand out. You want to, you want to be good at what you do and kind of carry your own weight. And so like on a small scale, if you've never seen sketch comedy, it's... The Groundlings is one in L.A. that you do, and Acme Comedy Theater was another one. But it's sort of like a very, very minor league sort of Saturday Night Live sort of situation, and, or Mad TV or SCTV. And so you're trying to create for yourself characters. You want to create a, a, you know, a character that stands out, or you want to be able to do impressions because that's 
very useful in sketch comedy. So that's what I started doing. I started doing impressions that I used to fool around with with my friends. I started doing them on stage. And that led Jimmy to say, hey, you, that would be a useful gift for the morning show. So I started doing more of them on the radio show. And then um, that led to doing impressions in animated projects. And then with Hollywood Babylon, when I started that with Kevin, a big chunk of our show is me doing different impressions and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger sings hits of the 80s is and all kinds of... Is it something you kind of regret though? You're like, oh god, now I gotta pull out Edwin again. I am a little bit of a trained monkey, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, people do say, do that thing that you did last time, do that again. That Read me this laugh. email that I sent you. In dance, the monkey, yeah. dance. But I don't mind because people like it and it's, and it's, it's fun to do too. I mean, when you start doing, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, you can't help but feel good about yourself, you know, because look how pumped up I am, how huge I am. I mean, it's just, it's just, uh, it's silly and it's fun and you get to play. That's all. I remember saying it, uh, the first time I saw you do a voice in person was at, uh, it was, you guys were at the Weenie Roast one year, and, and you just switched into Schwarzenegger and started complaining about how hot it was. <laughs> that sounds And like I was me. like, that's the guy that does the voice. Yeah. You know, and it was just like, it was one of those like moments you realize, it just, it's just funny. And well, you know, if you're doing radio, that's a great gift to have because it's, radio, so much of it is what they call theater of the mind, right? Where you're, you're, you're listening, but you're imagining what you think is happening. So if you can do even a reasonable impression, people will fill in the blanks and they'll imagine that person. And it's much funnier when you think the actual person's doing those things. You know? It is, actually. Yeah. It's a little disappointing when people see me do it live because they're like, that doesn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger at all. <laughs> that's, not bad. that's not Al Pacino. But it's just so funny to watch. And, and you know, even Kevin's pointed out on the show is like how you get so into it when you do Pacino. You actually start doing Pacino in your face and stuff. Well, and I, I, that's surely from lack of talent because, <laughs> because I really can't do those things unless I do the physicality and stuff that goes with it. I mean, it really helps me do that impression, whatever that impression may be. I can't just, I can't just break it out. Do you, you imagine know? yourself being? I do, yeah. If I'm doing Al Pacino... Ooh-ah. I gotta do the eyes. I gotta do the mouth. I gotta do the whole thing. Ooh-ah. <laughs> but I can't, I, I can't just break out the voice. I, I, if, I don't, if I don't just go into it and immerse myself, it doesn't come out. Have you ever seen that, uh, the movie In a World? Yes, of course. Well, they take themselves so seriously. I love In a World. If you've never seen it, it's a film about people who do voiceover work. It's fantastic. And it's a fantastic film. Lake Bell wrote and directed it, I yes. think, and she's terrific. But it's a great film. And I know a lot of those people because, again, another project I got out of K-Rock, the casting director for Family Guy was a listener. Oh. Okay. And so she brought me in to do, um, I think it was Dustin Hoffman. I think my first thing I ever did on, on Family Guy was Rain Man, Dustin Hoffman. And um, I know exactly what I'm saying. She brought me in to do that because they were having a hard time finding a Dustin Hoffman Rain Man, which I can't believe because everybody does Dustin Hoffman <laughs> that seems from Rain Man. pretty easy to yeah, me. Yeah, definitely, definitely do it. Yeah, we all do it. Yeah, we all do the voice. Uh oh, five minutes to Wapner. Yeah. So she brought me in, and we and I did it, and Seth got a big kick out of it. And that was the beginning of that relationship. It's been 10 years now I've been doing Family how Guy. Many, how many, do, do you have a count of how many times you've been on Family Guy? Because I, I, I feel no. like, like it's in some episodes you're, you're in it three or four different characters in one episode. Yeah, that's usually how they use me, is that I'll come in and they'll, 
you know, I don't have a recurring role on the show, but I fill in the gaps and I do, you know, the roles of cops and lawyers and politicians and doctors and stuff like that. So sometimes I will do two or three or sometimes four characters per episode. But I've been in almost every episode for the past 10 years, at wow. least once. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty impressive, man. It's, Congratulations. It's one of my favorite gigs in the world because it's... Everyone who writes on that show and Seth and all the people that he surrounds himself with are just some of the funniest, nicest people you ever want to work for. And when you're, when you're there, you feel like you're, um, I don't know, it's like, it's hard to explain, but it's like visiting a really cool party, you know? <laughs> you don't get to stay there very long, but you get to go in and have a couple drinks and then leave. And you're happy just to have been there. So that's how I feel when I go work on Family Guy. That's awesome. And then Seth, again. These are all friendships and relationship stories. Every story I have about my career comes from somebody I, uh, who did something great for me. But that's called the, the business. I guess it is, yeah. Um, but Seth, because of the Family Guy connection, then when he started blowing up and becoming this super genius, uh, and he started making movies, he brought me in to do Ted, mm -hmm. and that was the first one. And then uh, A Million Ways to Die in the West, and then Ted 2, and he's got another project we're talking about working on. So I'm very lucky that I have friends who are very loyal with me, that once I work with them, they tend to pull me in and, and let me work on other stuff with them. As long as it doesn't involve that diehard guy. Oh, Bruce Willis, yeah. <laughs> tell, tell, I, I don't know if people are caught up. Uh, can you yeah. tell the Bruce Willis story? People who are listening may not know the story. I recently got cast in a movie, a really fun role in a feature film that was directed by two friends of mine, the Cullen brothers, Mark and Rob Cullen. And they're doing a uh, action comedy with Bruce Willis. And I was cast in it. They just called me up and said, we're making a movie, we're directing for the first time, we wrote the script, we'd love you to be in it. And I said, whatever you need, I'm there, I'll do it. Because I love these guys and I think they're really talented. And I didn't realize when I said, yeah, whatever it is, I'll do it, I was saying yes to a Bruce Willis movie. I didn't know. Because I had lived through my friend's experience with Bruce Willis because Kevin Smith had directed him in Cop Out and it damn near broke him. You know, it, yeah. it almost broke his spirit for movie making. It pretty much did. It, it did. He like pretty it. much quit after that, yeah. more or less. Yeah. He's back in a big way now and I'm happy for him. But uh, he was really, really uh, bummed out by that experience. And I knew how rough it was for him and I'd heard all the stories. So I knew better than to work with Bruce Willis. I mean, anybody with <laughs> half right a brain, if you had a choice, you would not do that. But I said yes, and then I found out after the fact it was Bruce Willis, and I said, that's fine. I probably won't even work with him. I found out my scene, it's me and Bruce Willis in this scene. And, Trading uh, dialogue. And the fun part is that I got to play a homeless guy who discovers Bruce Willis in a back alley after he's been roughed up, and I think he may be dead, so I take a stick, and I poke him in the penis with a stick. <laughs> and he wakes up, and I become sort of his de facto sidekick, and I push him in a shopping cart out of the, out of the alley and I it's help so, him out so for, awesome. for a couple scenes. It's a funny, funny scene. So when I read the script, I was like, okay, this is, this is going to be a, a standout moment in this film. This is really going to be fun to do. So this is going to be the guy that pokes Bruce Willis in the dick. People will remember that scene. They'll say, remember that scene where the bum pokes Bruce Willis in the dick? That was really funny. I mean, I knew that people would remember that. So uh, I show up and it's an hour and a half, two hours of wardrobe and makeup and they got schmutz caked all over me and dirt and under my fingernails and my hair has got grease and stuff in it and I'm sitting in my uh, trailer and I'm sitting and I'm sitting and I'm sitting and the guys come to me, the, the directors who are friends of mine, they say, yeah, we're sorry you know, but Bruce Willis told us that this scene will never make it in the movie and I was like, how does he know that it will never make it in the movie? Because he said he's not shooting this scene <laughs> and he walked off the set 
And so I was all dressed up with no place to go, literally. <laughs> and I never, never shot the scene. Never, I'm not in the movie, and I didn't shoot anything because Bruce Wells decided he didn't want to do this, it. This happened three days in a row, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's, I'm trying to make the story yeah, a little bit no, shorter. I, but I, I know. But the first, just... I, had a, I was cast in one role that was a different role where I played a guy who worked behind the counter at a sleazy motel, also a very funny scene. He decided he didn't want to do that scene, so that got cut. So they felt so bad, they recast me as the bum, and then that got cut, and they said, well, we'll do it the next night. And I came back the next night and did the whole thing again, and they said, well, we ran out of time. It's the last day of shooting, and Bruce, uh, Bruce is going too slowly, so we can't shoot that scene. So. so I lost out on three different jobs in one movie because of Bruce Willis, basically. Fuck Bruce Willis. Fuck Bruce Willis, that's what I say. Yeah. And then Woody Allen, Woody Allen fired him, and I said, all right, I, I feel vindicated. Yeah, how do you get fired from a Woody Allen movie? I Come know. on. Ugh. Bruce, you're just such an asshole. It's just, I, can't, I can't work with you. Just, you fucked Ralph over. <laughs> That's what I like to imagine Woody's saying to him, but probably not. Uh, so I've got to ask you, this is something I've always wondered. With the K-Rock job, you come across a lot of celebrities, and you and I kind of have the same um, filter problem. We, we, we like to say things about people, and, and you have a show kind of devoted to the fact that, that you kind of say anything about anybody with, with Hollywood Babylon. You guys don't hold, you don't, you don't hold it. That's the thing I love about the show. Yes. Uh, is, is there's, you really haven't held anything back. With but Babylon? Then, with Babylon. Oh, no, no. We've been... Brutal with, and vicious with, to some with people. With K-Rock, you have, like, Kanye West stops by, and you have all these other people that, that come by. Yeah. How do you turn, and, and turn, off, turn on and turn off that, that celebrity interaction where you're like, I hate everything you've done, but I have to play pleasantries with you right now? I'm lucky because it's the Kevin and Bean show. Those are the two guys whose name is on the door. Yeah. And so... Um, Often, I can participate as much or as little as I feel I should to make the show as good as it can be. So if someone, if a guest comes on who I've ranted and raved about or I've been particularly critical of or whatever, if they're going to interview that person, I'll just remove myself from the situation. If it was my show, I wouldn't. I would attack them and I would be honest. But it's not my show. It's their show. Yeah. And I feel like out of respect, because it's the Kevin and Bean show, I have to just disappear and not make a problem. You know, it's like being a guest at a party. You don't want to start a fight with someone if it's not your party. Yeah. Um, so, but very, very rarely does a guest get invited onto the show because my point of view often is reflected by the other guys, too. Yeah. You know, they, they sort of feel the same way. And with Babylon, we don't have guests at all. No. So it's not like we ever have to deal with them professionally, but sometimes socially we have to deal with well, them. Well, you know? that was going to be my next question is you talk a lot of shit on people but still end up in their movies or, you know, there's, there's, there's people like... Do you feel like you like it's either I'll fuck everybody and I'm going to say whatever I want and hope it doesn't affect my career or, you know? Well, you can't live in fear, you know? You can't live in fear of whether you're going to get the next job or not. Um, oh, wait, obviously you can live in fear. <laughs> I choose not to. I mean, I don't think Bruce Willis is ever going to ca- like go, hey, I want got Ralph Garman in this right. next movie. So that's one guy out of how many actors I, in the world, right? But exactly. I mean, that's the way I have to think about it. Because either if you're going to do something like you're doing, or if you're going to do something on the radio that people genuinely respond to, I think it's almost impossible to get that reaction from people if you're not being honest. And yeah. if you're going to kiss everybody's ass 
it's going to be transparent. I think people will pick up on the fact that you're Ryan Seacrest, you know? <laughs> but if you're honest and you say, I love some people, I mean, I think we're just as effusive on the Kevin and Bean show and also on Hollywood Babylon with the people that we love and adore and we just can't wait to have them in as guests and the people whose work we love uh, as we are critical of people that we don't like. Yeah. It's an honest take one way or the other. And I think if you're going to be honest, then you have to deal with the cost, whatever that may be. And if it means I never work with Bruce Willis again, all right, that, so be it. I, I don't think it's a particularly pleasant experience to work with Bruce Willis. I know it isn't. <laughs> so I don't think I'm missing out on anything, really. And I, didn't, I wasn't getting jobs before I started talking shit about people, you know? So I'm really not, I'm not losing anything. I'm just getting other not getting other jobs, basically. And I've got a lot of good friends who are talented and nice people who do keep hiring me, so I know I'll probably make, you know, make a buck. I just, I just refuse to worry about the politics of Hollywood because I, I've just been out here for a long time and I'm just tired. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> what's your normal day like? Luckily, there are no normal days. That's one of the things I like about my life. Um, the, the, the regular part is I do have to get up every morning at 4 a.m. to get oh, to the radio station by 5 to start doing the morning show. That sounds brutal. It's a nightmare. It really is. It's People been 15 say, years. You get used to it. I was like, I'm still not used to it. I cry a little bit every time the alarm goes off in the morning. I literally, one tear rolls down, like that old commercial with the Indian when the trash goes by the side of the highway. Just like one long, long tear comes out. Um, I hate it so much because I'm such a night person and, um, and a drinker. And so mornings are particularly difficult for me. But I do it and I get up and I go to work. So I have to be in the studio by 5, 5.15 if I'm pushing it. And then 5.30 we go live. And then we do that show all morning till we go off the air at 10. And then we spend the next couple hours um, breaking down what didn't work on today's show <laughs> and what we can do differently tomorrow. And we start I'm planning. Sure that's a fun conversation. Oh, yeah, especially with the, the suits. <laughs> but then we start planning the next day's show, and we kind of get it locked in, and we're ready to go. And so by noon, pretty much that is done. That part of my day is done. And then usually one day a week, depending on when, what they're recording and when, I get called into Family Guy. So I have to go in one day a week, and I'll either record... Um, one or two episodes of whatever I'm going to do. And then sometimes in the afternoons I'll have auditions for television or film work. Uh, towards the end of the week I start preparing the Hollywood Babylon podcast, which usually takes about two days to go through everyone's emails and to pull video clips. So and you, you still produce that yourself? Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, just because that's the only way I really know how to do it. Yeah. Um, that's how I started doing it at the very beginning. And as the, as the show grew and we started adding more and more elements to it, audio and then pictures and then video and stuff, as it grew, I just started doing those myself. So now, sometimes it's, I feel like if I, don't, if I don't do it, it won't come out the way I envision it yeah. to, to be. You know? yeah. I've got help. I've got, I've got a, 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 a associate producer who works on the show with me, her name Gabby. And um, now at least I'm at the place now where I can give her some of the work. I, I'm, I'm very sort of anal retentive about it. But oh. I can say to her, look, okay, I need this clip from this movie or whatever. Can you, here are the time codes. Can you go edit that and take care of it for me? And she does a great job with that. So I'm starting to loosen up a little bit. But it takes two or three days to put Hollywood Babylon together to compile it. And then on a Friday night, usually, we perform at the Improv, uh, the world-famous Improv Comedy Club on 
Melrose in Los Angeles. Most of the time we do it there. Yeah, it's a great club. Um, most of the times we do it there or I'm on a plane because we're going to travel someplace and do it on a Friday or Saturday night someplace around the country. So that's the average. That's the average week. But it varies depending on, you know, I mean, for example, I took some time off to do the Bruce Willis movie. <laughs> Smart move of vacation, vacation days there. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad I burned those vacation days. That was a good time. Um, but I will take vacation if I have to go someplace to shoot. For example, um, I don't think this is a secret because Kevin posted it. Kevin Smith, who's doing uh, Mallrats 2, the sequel. Mm-hmm. Looks like we're going to be shooting that next in January, at the beginning of the year. So I'll take some time off and go on location and I'll shoot my role Do you have a speaking role, role this time? I do have a speaking role okay, in good. that, yes. And then we've got Yoga Hosers, another film I did with Kevin that comes out the beginning of next year, and, and I'm a big, I got a big role in that one, so I'll be Opposite doing... Opposite Johnny Depp. Me and Johnny Depp working together. Yeah, Johnny Depp, for example. Johnny Depp is the anti-Bruce Willis. He is... <laughs> he didn't care if you poked him in the dick. He wouldn't. He'd say, go ahead, poke me in the dick. He'd invite it. <laughs> no, he... I, is... I heard you actually did. <laughs> I did, yes. Uh, no, I didn't. I would never. He is uh, one of the sweetest men in the world and kind and generous and talented and was just a joy every minute that I got to spend with him. What the hell, like, when when you heard that you're going to be playing opposite Johnny Depp, were you just like, did you freak? Yes. Because, you know, we're not too far in age. Johnny Depp is kind of like... He's an icon. Yeah. He's one of the greatest actors of his generation and he's, he's one of the biggest movie stars in the world. And he's in a Kevin Smith film. Right. Because Kevin, very smart. Did he not watch Tusk? Kevin was very wise. He was in Tusk. <laughs> oh, that's right. He was. Yeah, he was. <laughs> and he still came back from his Kevin, kidding, very kidding. wise, uh, cast Lily Rose Depp, his daughter, as the exactly. lead in the film. And so that's how you get Johnny Depp in yeah, the movie right yeah. there. That's smart. Um, and she's great in it, too, by the way. But um, I did <laughs> my, very first, my very first movie I did was a movie called Two for the Money with Al Pacino. And it was the same experience. I, I, they said, you're gonna work with Al Pacino. And so the, I said to the director, I said, um, if you could possibly move that big scene with me and Pacino to the end of my week, I would greatly appreciate it. Because if I get face to face with Al Pacino and the cameras start to roll, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I don't know what's going to come out of me, but it may not be words. It may be the other end. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. And he said, I will do my best. So I get there. We're in Vancouver. And the very first day, Ralph, this is Al. Al, Ralph. Okay, we're going to do your scene first. Let's <laughs> say, and the very first thing I have to do is work opposite Al Pacino. So I went through that experience. And I said, okay, I've got that out of my way. I will never feel that way again. So, I say to Kevin, I say, if you could just push me and, and Depp, the, the thing we have in the beginning right across from each other, if you could just push that, I would really appreciate it. This way I can warm up to it. He says, I will do what I can. <laughs> Again, first day, sitting down, Johnny, Ralph, Ralph, Johnny. Okay, let's do that thing where you two go back and forth. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> but Johnny, and actually Pacino did this too, the first thing they do when they get to a set, especially when they meet a new actor, introduce themselves, come over, handshake, small talk. They go out of their way to try to make you feel as comfortable as you can. I mean, it's, not, it's never possible to get fully relaxed. Yeah. Uh, I, I did with Johnny a little bit towards the end because he's just that nice a guy. But it's... Um, they, they go out of their way to try to get you to relax as much as possible because they recognize... 
you'll give a better performance, everything will go smoothly, you know, if, if you're not so uptight. And so um, Johnny did that, and we had a, gr a great time together. Although the first thing I had to do with him was my Al Pacino impression. Oh, really? Yeah. Because in, in the film, in Yoga Hosers, I play a mad Nazi scientist from Nazi Germany who is put in suspended animation for 70 years and then thawed out and then tries to take over Canada. <laughs> that, that old story. Oh, of course. So now <laughs> I'm, a, a, million I'm times. a German Nazi scientist who gets uh, put in uh, suspended animation. And when I come out of suspended animation, I don't speak any English. So I learn how to speak English by, by devouring everything on Netflix. <laughs> and so I often slip into impressions of famous actors <laughs> while I'm ranting and raving. So I start, you know, being very German and very, you know, very uh, Heil Hitler and all that stuff, you know. And then, uh, oh, perhaps I can explain myself better in the, in the words of Al Pacino. And then I just go into Pacino. Wow. So Pacino and Depp are like this. They're like best friends. Yeah, really? I had yeah. no idea. They worked on Donnie Brasco together. They That's had a film called Donnie Brasco, and they became fast friends on that set. To this day, they're still no best idea. friends. Wow. So now not only do I have to work with Johnny Depp, but I have to do an impression of one of his best friends to him in his face. He's How do you across. get through something like that? You just do it, man. You just put, you just put your head down and just say, this, is, this might go horribly wrong, but I just have to get through it. And so Johnny is sitting across the table from me, and I'm sitting on the other side. And this is in my evil Nazi lair, okay, where I've got him. <laughs> and I've got this big, like, high-backed throne chair. I'm glad you're doing serious dramas. Oh, yes, very much so. And Johnny is uh, in another chair, and he's got uh, his wrists are locked in place by this button I've pushed, and, you know, he can't get out. And uh, the girls are there, too, uh, Lily Rose and, uh, and Kevin's daughter, Harley. And so I'm going into this monologue, and I, I go into Pacino. And Johnny Depp's watching me do Al Pacino. And that was surreal for me. But after the very first take, Johnny le leaned over and said, that was a pretty good Pacino. <laughs> And that put me at ease for the remainder of the, the scene. Whether he meant it or not, I really appreciated him saying that. So let me ask you this. I, I, one of my questions I really love to ask people is, what keeps you inspired? Because it, it's, it's grueling to do what you do, I'm, I'm sure. You know, like, like you just, it's always chasing that next gig. And, you know, it, it's like you said, it's not a just sit behind the desk and do your job. See, that would be grueling to me. Yeah. I think that would be just, just soul-crushing if I had to push papers or, or you know, uh, do, do numbers or something. I mean, there's a lot more grueling jobs out there in the world than what I do. I feel bad for people who have to lay asphalt. You know, I see the guys, it's been 100-plus degrees for a, week, you know, for a week in Los Angeles, and I saw guys out there resurfacing a, a road with hot tar and asphalt, and I was like, those bastards are working. That's work. Yeah. What I do, I get tired sometimes. I get, I get busy sometimes. Sometimes I get overwhelmed. But it's just such a joy, all of it, you know, because the payoff is enormous. You either, you either get a pretty nice paycheck for working in the entertainment industry. You're way, way overpaid most of the time. Some people are really way overpaid. <laughs> Bruce Willis. <laughs> Where... You know, like elementary school teachers and stuff are having a hard time making a living, you know, yeah. and they're teaching our kids and, you know, some people are making ridiculous money to, you know, because they did a funny YouTube video or something, you know, it's crazy. Oh, yeah. So either you get that or you, especially if you're working in front of a live audience, you get laughter or applause or reaction to something that you've said or created 
that's amazing. Or, you know, I walk around here today and so many people came up and said, love listening to you on the radio. You, I have a shitty commute from Orange County to Culver City and I'm in the car for three hours and you guys get me there sane each and every morning. I mean, that's a cool thing. To, that's a nice oh, thing yeah. to be able to do for people. Oh, yeah. And people come up and they're so nice and they want to take pictures and they want to say hi and thank you. I mean, come on, it's great. I mean, that, and those are the payoffs that make the downtimes, of which there aren't many, but when there are downtimes or when you're working hard or whether you're tired and you have to get up and you don't want to get up, those are the things that make it, that make it a joy. So. What's the best advice somebody's ever given you? Best advice? Um, I, I think it was from an early acting teacher who said to me, you need to get out of class because you suck. No, no. Because <laughs> you got Because <laughs> you're, you're awful. Uh, no, he said, you need to get out of class. Classes are fine. And if, any, if there's any aspiring actors listening to this, they should know classes can be very useful. But he said, you will learn so much more by doing than you will ever learn by training or by being a student to someone. I mean, an acting class is basically a bunch of actors sitting around telling each other how great they are, you know? Oh, yeah. and, but if you go out there and you get in front of an audience, I mean, I did a lot of small, crappy theater work when I first got to Los Angeles. And they were, they were uh, small audiences in small theaters. And uh, the work sometimes wasn't very good. Sometimes it was an original play, sometimes it was a bad mounting of, a, of, a, of an existing play. But it was invaluable to get out there in front of people over and over and over again and learn what worked and learn what didn't work. That's the reason I started doing sketch and improv comedy. I never really thought of getting into comedy as a career. It's not what, really? I, what I wanted to do. You I wanted, wanted to be the serious actor. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to do films. Or so it was going to be a bloodbath. <laughs> exactly. Films are... <laughs> I wanted to do ABC after school specials or uh, <laughs> you know, movies or something. But I was, or maybe a sitcom or something, but I wasn't going to be like goofy on stage. But I decided if I did the sketch and improv, um, if I went that route, first of all, improv is invaluable. If you can learn how to do improv on stage in front of people who are staring at you. Be able to do it well. It really comes in handy. And the sketch stuff, I knew these guys wrote all their own materials. So if I wrote as well as performed, I said, this is a muscle that I haven't really developed yet. This really could be good training for me. So my training was always getting out and doing it. Um, and when I started writing, I've, I've written you know, some screenplays and some things and everything. Rather than go to a class or read a book or whatever, I just started writing what I knew. I would learn sort of the format and I would just start to write. And that led me to writing the comic book that I did, the Batman comic book, was that the more you do, not only the better you get, which is an important part of it, but the more you do, the, the more your chance is that someone will see you and see your work and appreciate it and yeah. maybe hire you to do something or, or maybe refer you to someone who will hire you to do something. So you, no one ever gets hired out of an acting class for an acting job. It never happens. No. But people do get hired off of YouTube videos or small plays or just by the act of doing it, you are you're putting yourself out there in the universe and allowing someone to react to what you do, to, to, to feel something about what you're creating. That thing may be, whew, you stink. I mean, that sometimes is the reaction yeah. you get, and that's okay, too, because you learn from that. But uh, the best advice I ever got was do more and you know, train less. Less classes, more doing. More, more theater, more, um, you know, put yourself out there as much as you can, and that really was invaluable. What was that moment where you really felt like you're, this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life? 
Um, well, I guess it was the first contract I signed at K-Rock. Because the first year, year and a half of that job, they paid me by the week. That's how tenuous my job was there. How, how easily in I cash. could have... In cash. In coins, just in a bag. Um, I, was that... They, they were not convinced I could do the job. I'd never done radio before. They weren't sure if I was the right guy to replace Jimmy. It was sort of a, an emergency situation because Jimmy was leaving in a hurry to go do the man show. So uh, I was paid weekly. Um, and everyone else on the show had a contract, uh, a multi-year contract. And so for the first year and a half I worked there, it was, they could have just said goodbye at any minute and I wouldn't have any recourse. I would just go do something else. And then about a year and a half in, I guess, maybe almost two years, they said, we'd like to discuss a contract with you. And I said, okay, let's discuss that. <laughs> and they said, here's what we're offering you know, for you to pay you, and this contract will be for three years. You'll be locked in for three years. So part of me was scared to death because the idea of being locked into anything for three yeah. years, that, that part of my brain was not well-developed. You know, I wanted the freedom to, run, to go do whatever I wanted to do. But then the part of me that wasn't crazy said, take the job, you know, uh, it's three years guaranteed work. And then at the end of three years, you can reevaluate. If you want to go do something else, you can. So at that point, I thought for the first time in my life, I was going to be able to work in entertainment and not have to do anything ever else outside of it to pay my bills or my rent or anything like that. So that was a big moment for me when I realized I'm finally making a real living as, a, as an entertainer. Wow. That's got to be so fulfilling. Just the... And it just keeps going for you. It is, um, it's, it's weird because when you don't have it, when you're just working towards it and you're working towards it and you're working towards it and you're waiting tables or doing whatever you're doing to make ends meet, trying to get to that point, um, you have, you're nothing but confidence, obviously, because you think if you weren't confident, you wouldn't be putting yourself through that. You know if you're given the opportunity, I will be able to do this, and I'll be able to deliver, and whoever's paying me will be satisfied with my work. That's all I ever really shot for. I was never trying to be a star. I mean, everyone has in the back of their heads, it'd be nice if you were a big movie star or a TV star or something. That was never really sort of my goal. I just wanted to deliver good work for somebody who was willing to pay me for it and not disappoint them and have an audience, whatever size, appreciate it, you know. Um, so you're pushing for that, and, you, and when you finally get that, at least a little bit, as I did with this contract moment I was talking about, it is a moment of complete elation and sort of satisfaction and accomplishment, and then you start worrying about losing it, <laughs> which I never saw coming. I didn't realize that you say, oh, wow, what if, now what if I lose this job? What if they fire me? What, do I have to, what if I have to go back to waiting tables? I'd never want to go back there again. So all the confidence you felt going forward is replaced by fear about going backwards, <laughs> if that makes any sense. So you're motivated by fear, basically. Largely, yes. Largely, I, I, I understand that. Look, and it could happen like this. It could happen tomorrow. Tomorrow, you know? everything could go away. You everything know? could go away, and that, I mean, that fills me with dread constantly. There's, there's been people on that show that are, you were there for... Well, yeah. no, we'll get down yeah. um, I just feel that... And people say, you do so many different things. And I say, largely because I can't be really successful at any one thing. <laughs> But also because I like having a lot of irons in the fire, oh, yeah. you know? I like knowing that I still do a little TV work or a little movie work or a little, or do the podcast, right? 
you know, I can write comic books if I have to. So if anything ever goes south, if you have to, well, if anything, <laughs> oh, ever if I just have to write a Batman comic book, <laughs> no, but I know I can, I can do that. I've pro- proven that I can do that, right? So if everything goes south, if I lose the radio gig and the podcast, and nobody puts me in a movie or a TV show, maybe you can I can write go to comic DC. books. Maybe oh, things come, things come and slum down it with us, Ralph. Come Look, on, if, it's better than waiting tables. <laughs> you're right. I mean, you want to do, you want to do. You want to stay in the game as no, long course. as possible. I, I and that's why I play a lot of different games. So I'm hoping that if, if one or most of them go south, I'll still be able to, to make a living with one of them. Do you, do you have aspirations for writing comic books again? I mean, now that the Batman Green Hornet is over, and which was fantastic, by the way. Thank you so much. I really had a great time I, writing yeah. that book. Again, it goes back to my geekdom and, and being a Batman geek and, you know, um, being such a huge, huge fan of that show. And... To, to have the opportunity to write an episode, if you will, of that show um, was a dream come true. And I almost feel like I would absolutely, first of all, to answer your question, I would absolutely love to write more comic books. But I would really like to write more of those comic books if they would let me. And so I've, I've talked to DC off and on. There's been some projects where it seemed like it might happen and then it didn't. But I'm, I'm still open to that. Yeah. I, I'd love to see you do more. For yeah, sure. I, I'm sure I could write other comics too, but that's the one that really... It's so thrilling for me, and I get such a big kick out of it that I've got, I could do others, but I don't think I would enjoy anything nearly as much as writing that book and those characters and that time. It's just, it's just special to me, that's all. Did Adam West read it? He did, yes. What did he say? He said, I think you captured my voice perfectly, old chum. <laughs> I was like, well, if Batman tells you that you wrote good dialogue for Batman, that's pretty do good. Do you ever have conversations with Adam West as that? Because out of all of your voices, I think that one's like special. Spot on. Like that's the one I've been doing probably the longest. You know, because was that little kid was that your your Eminem up the nose bit? Um, Girls going, oh my god, I'll sleep with him. He can do Adam West. I don't know if any girls like that exist. (laughs) I don't know if any any girls in here. I don't know if any woman has ever said, oh, that Adam West impression is really getting me hot. (laughs) Gotta have him. (laughs) Talk to me like Batman. No, that never happened. Um, you, you mean, you but the one that used to make the girls laugh was when I was a little kid. I, I used to do it in elementary school. Was uh, Shaggy and Scooby? Those are the uh, Scooby Doo was the big yeah. deal, you know. So, so like, like Zoing Scoob, this is really scary. Oh, I know. You know. If I did that at the table in elementary school, man, I was cool for about eight minutes. <laughs> and then it's over. And then it's over. Yeah. So, have you ever had a conversation with Adam West as Adam West? I've done Adam for Adam, yes, and he doesn't hear it. <laughs> Which is hilarious. Is he deaf? <laughs> well, he's been talking like that his whole life, so it probably sounds guess, normal to him, right? And I had to change my Adam West impression over the years because, you know, originally he was Batman. He was very sort of virile and forceful. And then as he got older, he was like Mayor West, like the, uh, yeah. you know, his voice changed. And he's much more thoughtful when he talks. And so I'll have to be sitting with Adam, talking to him, and he'll say, So do your impression of me, Ralph. And I'll say, Well, Adam. <laughs> I really enjoyed you on the most recent episode of Family Guy. And he'll say, that doesn't sound even a little bit like me. (laughs) All right, I I won't bother. How how awesome is it that you get to hang out with Adam West? It's pretty awesome. You helped the man get his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It's pretty awesome. That's incredible. Only because... You did did fandom's work right there. Like, Like, you did something for all of us geeks. It's so weird, you know, uh, of all the things, and I've had some great opportunities to do some really cool things in my life, 
my friendship with Adam West is still like the biggest kick I get. Because I found, you know, it dawned on me with the radio show, um, celebrity guests would come on to do promotion or whatever. And you meet a lot of people come through the doors. And the, the people that were famous when I was a kid, it's much more of a big deal oh, than yeah. the people who are famous now. You know, the people, I mean, we've had Bradley Cooper step in and, and you know, big, big movie stars and everything. And you're, you're a little bit taken aback because they're movie stars, but you say hello, whatever, and it's not a big deal. But, like, when William Shatner comes into the studio, oh, God, I yeah. mean, I grew up watching Star Trek. That's Captain Kirk, you know? Oh, yeah. And those moments affect me much more so than, than stars who are just famous from now. So to be friends with Adam West, to know his wife and his family, to be invited to his house, to have dinner with him, you know, to hang out. Still, I, I act very cool, but inside there's a six-year-old like, boy going, Holy crap, it's Batman! <laughs> this is so cool! If I could take any trip back through time, I would go and visit myself as a kid and say, One day, <laughs> you're going to have dinner with Batman. And I'll say, No way! How did you and I'll say, Yes, old chum! And they'll say, that doesn't even sound like that. <laughs> you. Did, you, did you meet him through K-Rock? Is, is that how you guys met? Initially, yes. Initially, he was a guest on K-Rock. And uh, his manager often says that I kept Adam's name alive when a lot of people weren't hiring him. And he really always, always appreciated that. But really? I would bring Adam on the show more often than, than perhaps was warranted. <laughs> um, I would invite him back. I would talk about his projects and the showbiz news. You know, I would bring him up. And, you know, it started to be a joke. Kevin and B were like, all right, we get it. You like Adam West. You're, you're into Batman. So um, his manager says, often credits me with, like, you know, I would get a call from somebody and say, I heard Adam uh, on K-Rock this morning, or I heard Ralph talking about this thing he was doing, and it would be a casting director or producer or something. That's it kept awesome. him going before Seth sort of took up the cause and gave him the role in Family Guy, which introduced him to a whole new yeah. audience and sort of recreated his career, you know? Yeah. But, but we, have, we, we dinner, and if he's in town, or if we're at a con together, you know, we go out and we have dinner, and That's I know his awesome. kids and his wife and stuff, and so that is still one of my favorite things in life is the fact that we're friends, and he's been to my house, and he's seen my Batman toy collection, you know? <laughs> and he still talks to you. And he still talks to me. He should be scared to he's death like, of me. Is what someday have, I'm going to end up in a case. Yes. <laughs> if you guys have not seen Ralph's collection, it's, it's a little excessive. Yeah, it's, it's psychotic is what it is. It's, it's how, how does your wife sleep with you? I mean, does she... Was this one of those things, like, she just got, had to go... I'll accept this because that's exactly. everything but. It's exactly what it is. She's a very accepting, forgiving woman. <laughs> and, and the truth is, I compartmentalize it pretty good. I mean, I get one room in the house. And that room is just mm -hmm. chock full of my childhood silliness. Yes. And then she gets the rest of the house to do whatever she wants, by the way. Decorates it any way she wants, and she has the rest of it. So I get, I get little... I have a little safe space for me to it's be... It's not a little safe space, I get a Ralph. big space <laughs> for me to be weird, and then I, the rest of the time I try to be normal. What's, what's your most prized possession in your Batman trove? I, I mean, it's, it's like a trophy case, guys. It's like... Some would call it a museum. Yeah, yeah. You're, I think uh, Chip Kidd is the only other person that has yeah, a more extensive Batman collection. Yours is... Mine's pretty good. Yours yeah. is good. Um... 
If you've got the Batman DVD set, if you've got the, the, uh, the box set, there's a bonus disc the on there. 66. The 60, Batman 66, yeah, uh, TV show on DVD or Blu-ray. There's a bonus disc on there, and Adam takes a tour of my collection with me. So oh, you shit, can, I haven't you, seen that. Yeah, you can see a little bit of it. But it's on oh the bonus gosh. disc. It's Adam coming to the house, and we kind of walk through the collection and talk about some oh, of the collectibles wow. and stuff. But um, my most prized possession is I have a pair of screen-worn Adam West Batman gloves from the costume that he wore on the wow. show. Yeah. Wow. And his arms are still in them. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, no, I, I just have them in a frame up on the wall. But that's, it, it, there's so much of that stuff, the, the props and the costumes and everything. In the 60s, when they made a TV show and it was canceled, they would burn it and oh, yeah. trash it, and there's very little of that stuff around. So I've got a, a couple pieces from the costume, and that, those, but the gloves are really cool, I think. Those are that's my favorites. That's awesome. Yeah. Don't you have the you have the mask? Right? I have a replica cow. It's not the oh, it's okay. not an actual one, but it's one. It's it's built exactly like that one. And in the video on the the bonus edition, um, the Blu-ray and DVD, Adam he says, "Well, let me put that on." Shut and up, he really? he puts the the bat cow on for the first time in like twenty years or something. That's amazing. It's pretty cool. And I start to cry. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I one, felt lone like it, one lone tear. One lone tear. Is there that piece that you're still like? If, if I ever come across... There's so much crap I still want. That, yeah? That it's not even one piece. There's so much stuff out Do there. Do you just sit there on eBay like all uh, day long? I'm an eBay junkie. It's a nightmare. And, and the problem is, the more money you make... The more stuff you need. And the more expensive stuff you want to yeah. buy and the bigger the toys get and stuff. You know? That's why I'm not successful, Ralph. That's a good idea. Stay right I, where you are. You're much I stay, safer. I stay yeah. at poverty level and it helps my bank account. Yeah. Once in a while I have to break the news to the wife. How does that She's go? like, you spent what <laughs> on a toy? It, it's an investment, honey. It's a great go-to line, guys. If you ever run into that with your girlfriends or wives, just go with that. It's an investment. It's only going up in value. I'm lucky I got in on the ground floor. So, um, what, uh, Somebody once told me that uh, you can get out of any conversation by looking at your wife in the eyes and just saying, I love you, I'm sorry. Yeah, that works too. And that's it. Yeah. You know. and now add to that, it's an investment. And then you'll be fine. There you go. Three words that'll get you out of any of those situations. But in the 60s, they made so much, uh, so many toys and stuff and everything that I've been collecting, for, obviously, for years. And I, I, there's still tons of stuff out there that I, that I would love to come across. You excited about, about Batfleck? Because hmm. you never really I'm talk curious. about it on the show. I'm curious. Yeah? I, um, I, I'm looking forward to watching the film. I'm looking forward to watching the film. Yeah. I'm more concerned with, the, with Zack Snyder than I am with, uh, with Ben <laughs> Affleck, quite frankly. Because Man of Steel, I, I, had a, I had some problems with. Oh, some? <laughs> yeah, I, I've kind of been vocal about my uh, problems with that movie. So I'm just hoping that this, this film is a little bit tighter and the screenplay is a little bit uh, stronger. And I, I, think, I think it could be it could be good. Did you think he was a good choice, though? If Affleck was a good choice for, for Batman. Oh, initially I mean, the when, casting? When, I didn't think it was good casting, no. Really? Yeah. What do you um, think about him when you saw him in the costume? I think he looks great in the costume. Yeah. I, I, I went from being one of those uh, knee-jerk internet fools who uh, went crazy <laughs> when he was cast, like, ah, oh, this is unacceptable. And then as it's gone forward, and I've seen him in the costume, and I've seen a little footage and everything, I'm, I'm really sort of warming up to it. So I'm looking forward to seeing the movie. It's awesome. Yeah. Great. Can we take a few questions, maybe? Uh, all night long. Anybody want to? Oh, don't. Hey, we've got this room till <laughs> 8 o'clock if we want. Anybody no, have some questions to. that they want to ask, Mr. Garman? Uh, 
One Besides question. Nando? We have one question. <laughs> it's not a question. Great, then get out. <laughs> okay, so that's Nando. He doesn't make sense ever. <laughs> Oh, sex you. Yeah, that was that was another thing that I was, was kind of proud of. That was a long time ago, too. That was a thing I was kind of proud of. I mean, um, when I started doing the radio show, I was a single guy, and everyone else was in relationships. And so I took it upon myself to be sort of the spokesperson for single people out there having crazy sex. And hey, guys, we're not talking sex. You... you God hey, don't dirty. be judgmental, man. I'm not. Hey, I'm not one to judge, There's something man. for everybody out there. I'm not judging. Man. And so I did a weekly segment where I would take some unique form of uh, sexuality or some unique interest that some people may have, and we would talk about it. We'd break it down, and I would do a very thorough job of research, and I would present it, and then we would take phone calls about it. That's such it. a hard job. It was. Going I to I sex I did hours and hours and of research until parts of me were very sore. The BDSM, I'm sure, you know. And so I did that on, uh, on the radio for a couple of years. We had one day a Your week was dedicated penis. to Sex University, we called it, or Sex U. And then it went away like that on a Monday when at the Super Bowl, Janet Jackson had a wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> and you remember the outcry? I mean, it seems silly oh, now. Yeah. I mean, Miley Cyrus is, is showing that on a daily basis everywhere, right? Yeah. But uh, at the Super Bowl, Janet Jackson had a wardrobe malfunction where she was performing with Justin Bieber and her boob came out. Uh, Timberlake, I'm sorry, Bieber. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's terrifying. Timberlake, yes. Ouch. Um, and her boob came out and the world ended, as we all know. The world ended. The, uh, the, the black hole came and swallowed us all up and it all disappeared and we all, we all stopped living. Actually, no, nothing happened. But... What did happen was CBS, the, the corporate parent of my radio station, was also airing the Super Bowl that, that year. <laughs> and so they went into full-blown panic mode. They went DEFCON 1. Which, which one's big? One? DEFCON 1, yeah. DEFCON 1 with anything that was the least bit titillating, sexual, could be misconstrued, someone could maybe take offense to it, a nun would blush, anything that would make anyone uncomfortable went away literally overnight. And they came to us and said, you can no longer do that segment where you talk about human sexuality anymore. And I would say, it's educational. It and they said, we don't care. It was. I, I thought so too. To and people day, still come yeah. up to me and say, I learned so much about that one thing that one time when you said that. I learned plenty from you, yeah. honestly. But it all went away. And uh, from that day forward, we've never been able to touch that subject matter in that way again. That and we sucks. do a lot grosser, weirder stuff now. We with, do. With like jokes and comedy and stuff than we ever did. That was a pretty legitimate, straightforward like, well, education. Now you segment. can do a podcast about it. Yeah, really, I could. I don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have time to. Get spanked by straight. And I'm women. married now. Sex, whatever. <laughs> Go to bed. Marriage is not the death of sex. It is not, but it sure makes it nap sometimes. I'll tell you. <laughs> sure. Any more questions? Questions? Oh, more. Oh, geez. Okay. Yeah. All of a sudden, it just takes the one. Yes. Of you. Yes. Ralph Garman. Well, obviously. Um, you're saying what actor could pull off sort of the, 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 
the, the square, the square Batman of the 60s. It had to be somebody who, first of all, had that look, right? Great looking, but also had a great sense of humor. And I think John Hamm would be the guy to do it. Oh, yeah. From Mad Men? Yeah. A lot of people yeah. just know him as Don Draper from Mad Men, which is a very straight role. But if you ever watched him on 30 Rock or on Saturday Night Live, the guy's got an incredible sense oh, no, of humor. Oh, yeah, totally. And I think he would have the look and also be able to pull off the performance, too. I think he'd be great to do sort of like a, a square, square-jawed Batman version again like that. Orange shirt. How do you break voices? That's a great question. Um, I do work on new voices, depending on, especially with the radio show, when they come up as a necessity, you know? And invariably, I will find out at that moment when I'm trying a new voice whether <laughs> I really have any talent or not for that, for that. And that's why I feel bad when people talk about the voice work that I do, because there are guys out there who are really excellent impressionists. I mean, guys who hone it and work on it, and they're playing Vegas 50 weeks a year, and they're terrific. And they can do anybody. And I, if someone's in my range, I'm good. If they're not, I really had a hard time. Like for the longest time, and this is going to be, this is gonna, I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm going to pull back the curtain here. For seven years, I worked on Barack Obama. And I just could not nail it. Could not come up with it. That's not an easy one to do. It's that. not easy, but I, that's my job. I should be able to do something, yeah. something close to it. Never got close. And I worked my butt off Let on me hear that it. one. I'm not going to do it. I told you I can't do it. It's embarrassing. See, but do you feel like it's one of those things where you personally don't think it, but everybody else is like... You. Like, like you said... Because I would do it, and people would go, hmm, no, it's you, not you there. You think that Rain Man, you, your first you know, family guy was, was, was Rain Man, which should be really easy. It, that shouldn't be very hard, but somehow they thought you were the man for it. Yeah, but not Barack Obama. I, I don't know what it was. I, it was the tone or the timber or the cadence or whatever it was. I mean, all those things are kind of important. Rhythm, the rhythm that someone speaks. Man, I worked and worked and worked. And um, All right, I'll, I'll embarrass myself because since we brought it up. But his cadence is very important. Barack Obama, when he's talking, sounds very staccato. And he likes to talk about things, especially about policy. And I, I realized as I was doing it that basically I was doing Captain Kirk. When I, <laughs> every time I tried to do Barack Obama, it came out sounding like Captain Kirk. And I, I, just, I would slip into Shatner every time. I could just never find it. I could never find it. It was a very elusive voice for me. So that's why I, seven years of presidency, you never heard Barack Obama on the Kevin and Bean Show because I just could not come up with it. But now, since, since Donald Trump's going to be our new president... <laughs> I have been working on my Trump because it's been very, very much in the news and the guys are like, can you do it? And I said, I don't know. And then you just go away and you start working it and working it. And it's not there yet. I think I'll have some more time to work on it. I don't think he's going anywhere soon. But one would hope. Obviously, he's very New York and that's what he does. He's a ratings machine. People watch him unless they're losers and stupid. <laughs> so. Next, you got to get Chris Christie, and then you <laughs> right. know work on the entire Republican <laughs> candidate field. It's going to be an God, exciting Rick one. Gone. It's going to be really exciting to see what happens with the Republican. It, I think it's great theater. I really do. It really is. It is fascinating to watch. Uh, my only fear is literally President Trump one day. I mean, it's all going to be funny until inauguration day. <laughs> until, gonna, until it actually happens. Hey, now we're going to get Mexico to build a wall and pay for it. <laughs> How are you going to do that? 
Okay. I don't know. I'm stupid. I'm a loser. Ha ha. Joke's on you. <laughs> One more question. Batman shirt. The animated. They're doing an animated version, yeah. Yeah. No, it's no, animated. animated. Yeah, it's going to be animated. Come on, man. We, we know our Batman up here. <laughs> yeah, right. Go back to school, Don't buddy. Don't test me on this, Batman. Take off that Batman shirt you're wearing, too, by the way. <laughs> yeah, they're doing an animated. <laughs> no, I didn't mean it for real. Oh, you had, a, oh, you had Venom oh, you underneath. Had a Venom shirt on underneath. All right, okay. Thanks for coming to my side. Oh, you're like DC Marvel. Pick a side. You're very conflicted, my friend. <laughs> um, yeah, I heard they're going to do that, and I heard uh, Hamill's coming back to do the Joker voice, right? Yeah. So uh, I'm in. I don't care. I don't care what story they do. If he's coming back to do the Joker, I'm in. He's the, he's the greatest Joker ever. I think. I oh know. yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, he's certainly done it the most. Yeah. But um, and obviously, great actors have taken on that role. But I think he is just the quintessential Joker. So now that you've done Marvel work, do you feel like you're betraying Batman? Yes. <laughs> no, no, I did Agent Carter. I did a couple episodes of Agent Carter. And You're in that Marvel? What, the DC is not going to touch you now, man. Um, I don't know. They might. Because here's my thought. Agent Carter takes place in like the 40s. DC could use me like something modern day and just say I'm the relative of that guy. I'm not even the same guy. <laughs> you know? It's just that it's an ancestor who saw the error in his ways and started working for DC. But I've done a couple things with Marvel. I did an uh, Avengers... Uh, animated show for them where I played um, I'm blanking on the name of the character it was a, a villain who makes uh, Hulk and uh, Hawkeye fight it's on Avengers Assemble is that the name of the show the animated show uh, Mor- Morgo Mor- Mo- Mo- Mojo Mastro Mojo no. Morgo Mojo Mojo I played Mojo that's who I did yeah I never had to say my own name so I didn't remember it <laughs> um, so I did an animated thing for them and they also put me in um, in Agent Carter as well, and so I'm just I'm just happy to work. You know, whoever wants me, I'll do it. And uh, if if DC, here's the thing: DC, I heard is working on. I heard, like I don't know. I'm not gonna lie to you. I know for a fact, DC is currently producing a animated 1966 Batman feature film, where Adam West and Burt Ward are gonna return and voice Batman and Robin. And um, and Ralph Garman is doing every other voice. <laughs> And so I am, uh, I am currently knocking down their door trying to uh, get one of the roles in that, in that uh, production. Who would you want to play? Uh, Cesar Romero as the Joker. That That's what amazing. I would like. What would that sound like, Ralph? Well, it might sound a little something like this. Yeah. It's Fat Man and the Boy Blunder, yes! Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Ralph Garvin. Oh, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you again so much for doing this. My pleasure. It was my pleasure. No, really. Really, this is very near and dear. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. You can follow Ralph on Twitter. He's just at Ralph Garman. Also, go over to smodcast.com and make sure you subscribe to Hollywood Babylon. But I know you already do that. Also, Ralph is a regular contributor to the Kevin and Bean Show. Go listen to the podcast. You can find that on iTunes. 
And make sure you pick up his Batman 66, Batman Meets the Green Hornet. It's available at all your comic book stores and online. Quick favor to ask of everybody, go over to iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you downloaded this podcast from, and please leave us a review. You can also help us out by letting your friends know about this podcast. Add us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're just at Eat Geek Play. All right, see you next week. Stay creative.